Chapter 18, Accepting What Is The opening quote for this chapter is by Carl Gustav Jung. We cannot change anything until we accept it. Condemnation does not liberate, it oppresses. Over the course of my year of coaching training, I would discover many, in point of fact, too many, painful truths about the beliefs that had caused so much anguish in my life and irritation in the lives of those around me. Insights would come upon me so unexpectedly that I never had an inkling of what would show up next until it emerged from its hiding place. Sometimes it would come on the heels of a passage from the required reading or by observing a fellow student talk about something that I'd not yet known was true of myself as well. Other times it would appear during self-observation exercises, which revealed such nasty tendencies that many were the days and weeks that I could not stand myself. To keep it interesting, Mother Nature mixed it up with bouts of headaches, nausea, strong pulsations, and vibrations that racked my body, often making it impossible to sleep for weeks at a time. I was beset with fevers, strange odors, and discharges from my sinuses, body, and bowel, as well as erratic behavior patterns that frequently brought me to the brink of tears, making those who knew me perhaps wish they did not. Such was how I spent the next year surviving myself and the financial issues of my life. After 12 months, I completed all course requirements and was ready to sit before the coaching certification board, my classmates, and a camera crew. Completely exhausted and spent, I felt as if I had been beaten to a pulp. Ironically, when my classmates meet the morning before the first day's testing, Diane, my personal coach for the past year, asked our group if we were ready. When she sees my long, pale face with bloodshot and puffy eyes that are clearly drained of any resistance, she announces cheerfully, Gary's ready. What follows will be the last four days of our training, during which each of us will engage in a series of coaching conversations in front of the class with a complete stranger who has been chosen for this final part of the training. After an exhausting day, everyone who has gone through testing is waiting in the hallway outside the testing rooms. We are waiting for our turn to sit in front of the board to learn the results of our exam. As my group waits, everyone from the other group has already finished before even one of us has been evaluated. Then the door to our room opens and the first person from our group is invited in, leaving the rest to wait in the hallway. When it's my turn, I enter the room and sit at the chair in front of the four women who wait there. The first thing they do is to apologize for taking so long and giving the results of their evaluations. They tell me it took so long because they were talking about me, for which they again apologize. Always fearful that I might actually fail, my heart sinks as I assume they could not decide whether to certify me with a probationary condition or not to certify me at all. Already an emotional wreck and unable to hide my worst fears, I sit there on the brink of tears. Diane looks me in the eye and tells me I have misunderstood what they're saying. She says, it's a good thing they have spent so much time on me. But from where I sit, all I experience is the helpless feeling a pilot must have as his plane falls from the sky and is now coming in for a hard landing. Ignoring my obvious disappointment, Diane goes on to say that the reason they took so much time was because they did not think that I could be just a good coach or a great coach, but held the promise of being a truly masterful coach, and that they were racking their brains to come up with any suggestions, practices, or observations to help me achieve my potential. Even though my brain was hearing her words, my emotions have already gotten the best of me, I continue to spiral out of control as my imaginary plane plummets to its fiery death. Undaunted by my silent screams, you're such a effing failure. 
They offer the recommendations they have for me. They close the meeting by thanking me for participating in the training and tell me what a pleasure it has been to know and learn from me. They finish by saying they expect me to make a meaningful contribution to the community of practice and encourage me to continue to share my insights as a future course leader for their program. When they are done, I thank them, stand up, and still downhearted leave the room for the hallway outside. As I glumly open the door to the group waiting there, they ask about the results of my testing. Obviously saddened and unable to hide my mood, I grumble something about having passed. Thinking I'm putting on a great show and pulling their leg, in unison they moan, yeah, right, as if you ever had a doubt about passing. Still consumed by the overwhelming sense of failure that had for so long been the background of white noise of my life, I keep to myself and take a seat on the floor with my back against the wall. I wait with the others while the rest take their turns in front of the board. Sitting there with head down, my eyes listlessly gazing at the ground, John, one of the men from our group, gently asks what's going on. Against my better judgment, I get up and walk to where he is standing and look him right in the eyes. He repeats his question, which brings me once more to the familiar crossroads of being in the presence of a male figure asking me a question. Memories of a lifetime of betrayals come crashing to the foreground of my mind, revealing panic and the entrenched pattern to protect myself by editing what I was feeling in order to survive. But this time, I choose a different path. In that moment of choosing without care for self-esteem, the need to appear intelligent, mature, spiritual, or in control, knowing fully the irrationality of what I'm about to say, despite the fears, thoughts, and emotions that would ensue, I blurt out the sequence of events that took place in front of the board. When done, my face is wet with tears from my unedited testimony to John, who, to his credit, has not for one instant taken his eyes from mine, nor displayed any sense of judgment. Quietly, he envelops me in a silent hug that no words can describe, and in that moment, completely vulnerable to myself, my fellow man and God, I sob out a lifetime of judgment and ridiculed I have experienced at the hands of my stepfather, and most importantly, myself. Then I take my solemn seat against the wall once more, as other members of the class dare to engage me with their unconditional kindness. When the last of our group has heard the results of their testing, we meet back at the training room to close out the year and break for dinner. But somewhere between my public disclosure to John and dinner, the silence of the divine, and a palpable sense of love for and of God descends upon me. For the next ten days, I am filled with an exquisite sense of expansion alongside an almost imperceptible sense of ego. I am in love with every single sight I see and person I encounter. As my eyes fall upon each person in an instant, I know everything about them, how they got there, what they're thinking and feeling, and I know without exception that each is a blameless and innocent child of God. I understand the meaning of life, the movement of the wind, the warmth of the sun, and the presence of love in the world. Over the next few days, I meet with family members and longtime friends living in the Bay Area. I am only capable of unconditional love. As my eyes brim with tears, I apologize for anything I have ever done that has caused them pain. Later in the week, while leaning against a tree on University Avenue in Palo Alto, as I wait for a meeting with a client, my eyes are barely open. I am intoxicated by the mere act of breathing, the warmth of the sun, and the gentle breeze that is rustling the leaves. Next thing I know, 
A black GMC Yukon with tinted windows comes to a stop in front of me in the middle of the street. When the window rolls down, a beautiful black woman I have never seen before nor since peers out from the interior of her car and looking me straight in the eyes simply says, God bless, and then drives away. Later, as I walk down crowded streets, I find complete strangers that are walking half a block away will stop in their tracks and turn to look at me as if some part of them could sense my presence and wanted to confirm such with their eyes. At night, as I lay to rest, the energy in my body is so intense that I never know if I fall asleep. I experience bizarre purification rituals, prophetic dreams, and past life memories. It is in this state that I call my wife ecstatic and in love with her, God, and life. I apologize for all the grief I've ever caused her and tell her how anxious I am to come home.